Over the course of this year, our federal and state governments have been busy with new and improved schemes to help first home buyers climb onto the property ladder. The latest one to surface is nothing new. It's been on and off the table now for nearly 30 years. A proposal to let them access their super to help with the deposit, which of course is an enormous hurdle for so many. But what will this do to property prices? How will a drawdown impact their retirement incomes? Is this a false economy for the government? So retirees today are pretty comfortable. They have lower rates of poverty and financial stress than younger Australians. And reporting surveys, like there's an MB Bank survey that's the main one people look to, that shows they, are, they say they are more comfortable financially than younger Australians. At the same time, you know, they have about as much money in retirement uh, as what they did 20 years ago. And the group that is in trouble, the group that is very clearly in trouble is renters. So if you don't own your own home in retirement, you're going to be in big trouble. Um, and that has sparked a whole debate um, about super for housing. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're going to explore whether first home buyers should be allowed to access their super in order to buy a home, and if so, under what circumstances does it make sense on both a micro and macro level? And while we're on the subject of superannuation, is our current level of compulsory super adequate? What role does home ownership play versus super in the financial position of retirees? And to help us unravel this complex topic, we're welcoming back Brendan Coates, Household Finances Program Director at the Grattan Institute. Brendan's research focuses on tax reform, economic and budget policy, retirement incomes and superannuation, housing, transport, infrastructure and cities. He has done a lot of research in this specific area and I believe even modified his position on the subject in recent times. So we're looking forward to this chat and understanding why. Thank you so much for joining us again, Brendan. Thanks for having me. Brendan, looking forward to this. I mean, the first time we chatted, I nearly missed a flight. And then the second time we chatted, it was a very juicy conversation. So uh, I have to say you're one of my favourite guests. So thanks for coming on again. I mean, last week, the super reforms uh, you know, a report got released on, you know, how they kind of can better improve the super system. What's your kind of key takeaways from that? And why is this discussion just so important? Yeah, so I think the review itself, so the retirement income review was commissioned by the government, by Josh Frydenberg, following a recommendation from the Productivity Commission when they did their reporting to super fees. So if you follow the debate about superannuation and retirement incomes, there are just endless reviews about different parts of the system that just cascade from one to the other. Um, and it's because there's, you know, there's while the system is broadly working reasonably well, there's areas that we can improve. Yeah. So why the review I think is so important is because it's actually been 25 years since we've, or sorry, since we've had a holistic view of the whole retirement income system and how it's working collectively. So the last time mm. we had a review like this was arguably the Fitzgerald Inquiry in 1993, which is all about, say, boosting national savings. And they really they really cottoned on to the idea of compulsory superannuation as a way to do that. 
And mm. the reason why this is so important is because superannuation, I think more than most areas of public policy, is just weighed down by ideology. It's weighed <laughs> down by history. It's weighed down by egos of some of the key protagonists, of which I, you know, I think it's fair to say Paul Keating is is the most obvious example. Yes. Um, you know, he does come out to bat in favour of his baby a lot, and that's fair enough. Um, but I think what it means is that so much of there's been some shibboleths that have built up in retirement income policy and superannuation policy that have kind of gone unchallenged for a while, and this review mm. is actually sort of bursting that bubble to a degree. Yeah, I mean, I guess. Uh- Paul Keating is his baby, isn't he? He's the godfather of superannuation. But what are some of the other big key players out there that are kind of arguing different sides? Because I think it's important to to show where self-interest lies in this discussion and how you can be kind of sitting in the middle and what's ultimately best for Australians in particular. Yeah, so you've obviously got those that created the system, which Paul Keating is the, the most, you know, rightly claims credit and is the most active defender of the system. Um, you've also, because of the way we've designed superannuation in Australia, now, you know, I'll say at the outset superannuation is a good thing. We should have a rate of compulsory savings and we'll get yeah. into that. But one of the consequences of the way we've set it up basically is, a, you know, essentially a privatised system where the government compels you to save 9.5% of your income. It gets mm. channeled off to superannuation funds that's, that are not run by the government. It's run by a combination of private private enterprises, so it used to be more the banks, but also you know, groups like Mercer and others that are on the sort of the private side and then a bunch of not-for-profits. Um, so these are the industry super funds that are run in collaboration between unions and industry organisations. Um, and what that does is over time you generate this huge, you know, this huge lobby, this huge group of interests that have become increasingly vocal in their space. And I think that's one of the unforeseen consequences of how we set up the system is you know, these guys, it's $3 trillion of money under management, give or take, depending on a pandemic. Uh, it's $30 billion a year in fees. You know, that's a huge interest in the public mm. policy discussion. It's kind of come to dominate retirement income policy overall, even though super is only one part of the system. Hmm. It's actually $3 trillion. Am I correct in saying, okay, property markets or property values in Australia are roughly $7 trillion and the stock market is, what, $2 trillion? Have I got those numbers correct? The full, the property market, yeah, definitely about seven. I'm not sure about stock. Super is definitely bigger. I'm pretty sure it's bigger than the stock yeah. market. Yeah. Wow. So it's a huge source of wealth. Um, and you've kind of got this industry that is, you know, it's reasonably spent they're going to clip the ticket on the way through for managing your money. Um, but there is obviously a big self-interest that arises from that situation. I remember back in 20, maybe it was 13 or 12 or something around that period, right? And I was at a... Uh, a forum or an event, I guess, and you know they were talking about how big the super industry is, and I think at the time it was one point four trillion. Um, and so, you know, you're talking six, maybe ten years later, right? And it's doubled. Um, and that's the thing with superannuation: three trillion today, but it won't be three trillion in 2030. And that's why it's so important that you know we're setting policies and making it better for, you know, it's just going to grow exponentially potentially from here. Um, sort of the point the- of it, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is, but I think it, uh, it, there's probably two sides which Brendan can talk on that a lot of that money is will never get spent. You know, it's it's wealth that has been accumulated um, and while it should be getting spent in the economy, it will probably just pay passed down generations and that's probably one of the big problems with superannuation is there's a lot of money sitting in a tax-free environment that it just keeps on growing and growing and growing. Um, did the report sort of highlight that big problem? 
Yeah, it, look, so there's a bunch of things the review highlights, um, but I think the way to think about it is if you're, it's going to grow to be an enormous system by the time it's fully mature. And so you want to get the policy settings right early. Yeah. Um, you know, you're kind of growing your tree, putting the stake in the ground, making sure it grows healthily, grows strong. Um, and so you want to get those issues sorted before the industry and the sector gets too big uh, because mm. it'll be harder to fix those things. I think we're already seeing that as Chris mentioned around the tax concessions. It's really hard to take something away from people once they've experienced it and enjoyed it. <laughs> and, you know, that's the world we're kind of in now on the on uh, the tax breaks. I think the same thing applies to things like the fees and the costs and the like. Um, but the thing the, the I think the thing the review really showed quite clearly is it set out a coherent framework for thinking about, you know, what's the system trying to achieve and therefore what parts of the system try to fulfill those objectives. So, you know, the review is pretty clear. There's kind of like two main objectives of making sure that adequate retirement incomes are adequate, which is what, say, for example, the super guarantee compulsory super debate is all about. Mm. It's like making sure people are not in poverty in retirement and then making sure that, you know, you're what economists call smoothing retirement incomes, which is to say that people, there's behavioral biases where people don't save enough for the future, they discount the future. And if you don't yeah. compel them, they will not save enough and they'll have a lower living standard in retirement than beforehand. And the review sets out clearly that those are the two objectives, but when it comes to something like the rate of compulsory super, like you've got to set it at some level. And the the, the way that they think about it is to say, well, look, you're balancing consumption in retirement, which you increase by boosting the rate of compulsory super, mm -hmm. um, or versus, or by changing the pension rules, I might say, or you, or wages during working life, your living standards during working life. And they're pretty clear that you shouldn't try to get people to save for a higher living standard in retirement beforehand because you're compelling people. Like people can save, they can choose to save a lot more. You know, people who've listened to your podcast, I suspect, are on average trying to make sure they're set up well for retirement, they're trying to grow their nest yeah. eggs. Um, and they can do that via both the compulsory rate, the pension exists, but you've also got the opportunity and the ability to save privately voluntarily on top. And so the review says, basically, don't force people, implicitly don't force people to save for a higher living standard retirement than what they did beforehand. Um, and, you know, based on those standards, those adequacy standards we just talked about, you know, it's actually a pretty good news story. So retirees today are pretty comfortable. They have lower rates of poverty and financial stress than younger Australians. And reporting surveys, like there's an MB Bank survey that's the main one people look to, that shows they, are, they say they are more comfortable financially than younger Australians. At the same time, you know, they have about as much money in retirement uh, as what they did 20 years ago. And the group that is in trouble, the group that is very clearly in trouble is renters. So if you don't own your own home in retirement, you're going to be in big trouble. Um, and that has sparked a whole debate um, about super housing. With forecasting, I guess, um, you know, financial advisor for 13 years, the whole financial advice industry is built around um, helping you achieve goals and the number one goal generally for people is retirement, right? And people would come in at different ages, 20, 30, 40, 50, um, and when you'd go through an exercise where you would ask them what they earn, what they spend, and then you would um, basically forecast how their wealth is going to accumulate over that period, right? The problem is, is in that sort of calculation, there is so many variables that, uh, and it assumes the world goes in a linear line and it just, all of a sudden you get 7% over 20 years. And the reality is, you know, if we assumed what happened over the last 10 years or 10 years before that, 
it's so hard to know what the growth of over the next 30 years is be, could be. Um, especially you wouldn't even think interest rates would be at 2% for the next decade and they could be. So isn't one of the problems with these sort of reports is that the variables that they will use um, are wrong and returns aren't as high as what people assume. The you know, wage increases aren't as high as people assume. So isn't it better to overshoot a target and then have more than undershoot it and end up with less? You know, How does that sort of play into the whole discussion? So the report's 650 pages long. And Chris, this is literally why the report is 650 pages long. So what they're doing, first of all, is like the whole debate about retirement income adequacy. And I should say, you know, the stats I was just talking about, they're for retirees today. So that, they're just facts. They're not, they're not the outcome of modelling. Um, but the modelling matters for when you go to, okay, well, what's it going to look like for workers today? Is the, have we set up the settings of the system in the right way, you know, for people who are going to retire in 30 to 40 years' time? And so I think what's really interesting is when you do all the modeling, so, you know, you have to assume, you know, how long are people going to work for? Like, what's the return assumptions? What wa- what's wages growth going to be? You know, what's the tax settings? You assume the current tax settings continue and on and on and on. It kind of goes. What's mm. really interesting is, so the baseline, I'll give you the baseline calcs that the review came up with, which are very similar to Grattan's work. Um, so they were saying that the typical single worker you know, uh, like the median income earner who earns about 55, 60 grand a year uh, will replace 88% of their pre-retirement earnings. And a couple mm. will replace 82, which is above the 65 to 75% review benchmark that the review nominated. Grattan uses 70, you know, 70, something like 70 is normally the number. I think what's super interesting is like, like what are the assumptions that actually change that story? And interestingly enough, the returns barely change the story at all. So, you know, I think we all focus on super because it's the thing that we can see and it's the thing that's got our name on it. But it actually, if you reduce the returns, you barely change the outcome because you get less pe- less super and you get more age pension. Now, we know the age pension means test is relatively aggressive, um, the assets test, uh, but a consequence of it is you could, is that your retirement income is actually not very dependent on your the return assumption. How much the government spends on retirement income is probably more dependent on that return assumption. But your the pension, one of the things the review shows is the pension is providing all these forms of insurance for people. So it's insurance if you lose your job and you don't make any contributions for a couple of years. It's insurance against the fact that returns might be lower. It's returns, it's insurance against the fact you might live longer than you expected and therefore you, there's a risk you run out of your money. And mm-hmm. under most of these scenarios, the actual, the actual amount of that replacement rate doesn't actually change all that much. So, for example, you know, if the replacement rate is 80, actually it was 87% for the single worker at, at the median worker um, who's 30 today, uh, if you have lower returns, half percent lower, it's 84. If you have 1% lower, it's 81. Hmm. Um, interestingly enough, you normally won't get lower returns unless you also get lower wage growth. You know, those two things normally will go together. And then if those two things go together, then you're poorer during your working life and you're poorer during your retirement and your replacement rate is still 87%. It's the same. So these things interact in, in quite messy ways. But the upshot is that the return assumption is the thing everyone worries about actually matters less for your retirement income than you'd expect. People get to retirement, they get more pension and mm. they just assume that's what they're entitled to. But in a world where returns are higher, they'll get less pension, but they'll have more super instead. I guess it's, um, yes, pensions and insurance policy, but 
you know, like in any insurance policy, you prefer not to have to use it. That's the whole idea of insurance. Um, and, you know, who's to say that that insurance policy doesn't have to change? You know, who's, you know, when that's your time and age of say 65 was set up, I don't know the exact numbers, you'll know it, but, you know, we were expected to live to 70. Now we, you know, got a 50% chance that one of the surviving partners are going to live you know, through their 90s. Um, who's to say that won't be over 100? Um, and so, you know, who's to say that we don't have to include the home in the asset test because there's just an enormous amount of wealth there. So how does the, the changes to the pension system um, just getting overloaded by, you know, potentially people having access to spend their money in super, how are they going to potentially have to play out? Well, I think what's really interesting is um, that one of the things the review sort of says, and I think it's the first line of the review, I haven't got it off the top of my head, it basically says the system's broadly sustainable, right, which is means the fiscal costs are not going to explode. So mm. age pension spending, you know, we're going to have an ageing population. That's absolutely true. But age pension spending is actually expected to decline as a share of GDP over the next 40 years. Mm. So we're going to spend less as a share of national income on pensions in 2060 than we do today. Now, partly that's because of super, right? The fact that compulsory super exists helps. Um, partly it's because of the design of the age pension itself. So the age pension uniquely in Australia is means tested. So, you know, we don't have a universal pension. And so the more assets you have, the more wealth you have, the less pension you'll receive. Hmm. So... What the system's done is it's moved us from a world where most people will be on a full pension to quite a lot of people will be on a part pension, right? And so they'll, you know, for in Grattan's modelling, and I think the reviews as well, basically, you know, that 30-year-old today, half of their retirement income over their course of their retirement will come from the pension and half will come from super. And we actually think that's a pretty good balance because it's, it's sharing those risks, that risk burden across the individual and across the public. So the idea that the pension's not going to exist, I think is... I think we've got to let that let that one die. It's going to be there, partly because, um, you know, if if in a world where the politi- in a world where the budgetary costs were going to explode, you'd say, okay, maybe it's going to change. Maybe you know, you know, you think if Greece had the pension retirement age was something like fifty or fifty five, and that was clearly unsustainable. We're at sixty seven. Um, I think that's about the right level. And what's interesting is the because the population is aging. One of the consequences is. A growing proportion of people are age 55 and over. So the proportion of eligible voters that's age 55 or older has gone from 27% to 34% in the last two decades. Um, They make up 38% of enrolled voters. So trying to cut the pension, I think, politically is is kind of becoming suicide. Political suicide, exactly. (laughs) You did mention earlier about, you know, the, the superannuation system is broadly working unless you're a renter. And, and yeah. I guess this is where we sort of get into this idea of there's a bit of ideology around, well, you know, you've got to help people get on the property ladder, otherwise it's disadvantage in their retirement, even if they've got superannuation for argument's sake. Mm-hmm. Or, 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 or you're sort of saying that if you're on the pension and you're renting, then really it's a pretty horrible situation. What is really the benefit of home ownership? I mean, obviously we're, we're proponents of owning your own home, but what, where does the difference come at retirement if you don't own your own home? Yeah, so I think this is one of the things where we're we're mistaking causation and correlation, right? So, you know, it's clearly true that housing has become more more expensive uh, and therefore less affordable for a lot of people. So we see home ownership rates are falling pretty sharply amongst, you know, younger cohorts and like largely the bottom 40% of of any income group. 
um, mm. of any age group. Sorry, any bottom forty percent by income of every age group. So you know, back in you know thirty years ago, something like sixty percent of those aged twenty five to thirty four, if they were the poorest twenty percent of that group, sixty percent of those own their own home. Now it's twenty, twenty percent. So it's a huge mm. collapse, and you're seeing that feed through in basically every group under the age of fifty five. Some of that people will make up by the time they retire and buy a house later. But, you know, I think quite a lot of that's actually baked in. So what's happening is housing's become more expensive and so fewer people are able to afford to buy a house. Now, what that means is you kind of people are getting to retirement today um, who are the bottom 20% of the income distribution largely and they don't own their own home and they're in deep trouble. Now, if they had managed to buy a home with the resources they have, I don't. I suspect they would, well, one, I don't think they would have been able to do it, but even if they could, I suspect they'd probably still be in quite a lot of trouble because instead of having, you know, paying rent, they'd be still trying to pay off a mortgage at retirement that they can't afford. Hmm. That's, that's what worries me is this, this, there's a lot of ideology out, out there about, well, okay, you should give up your super for a house, you know, and it's like, oh, Buying a property isn't always the best financial decision because of what they buy. Yeah, that's right. So I think the better way to think about it is to say that the retirement system's working well. The pension's set at roughly the right level. Like the, the review makes that pretty clear. It's set at a level that's above the poverty line and very few pensioners are in financial stress. It's not an extravagant lifestyle by any stretch, but if you are on the pension and owning your own home, you're typically not in financial stress yeah. and you're not in poverty. If you don't own your own home, you're in deep trouble. Yeah. And I think we just need the the answer to me would seem to be, you know, boost the pension that people receive if they're renting by increasing the rate of rent assistance they receive um, would be the most obvious way to solve that problem, given that you're unlikely to change the rates of home ownership um, by giving people access to super. And that's the people today, you know, that have, you know, haven't been able to buy a home for whatever reason, you know, health, divorce, financial savings, family, like there's so many things that, you know, make it hard to save. Um, and even just the cost of living in our capital city is just so high that actually saving that amount for the deposit and then something hits you like a job loss and then you lose all that money and, you know, years just tick by. Um, they're the ones that are really hurting, right? The people that, you know, yes, the pensions, you know, if you are $400 a week or whatever it is, but, you know, they have they kind of use that $400 to then go and pay two $300 a week in rent. Um, and then still survive. That, so you're saying that to, to bridge that gap, there's rent assistance. But for the people that have still got, you know, 10, 20 years from retirement, 30 years, 40 years, what's your view on saying, well, let's give them access to some portion of that superannuation, whether it's 10, 15, 20, 25,000, to help them bridge the deposit gap that they need to buy their first home? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting question. So, like, let me put it this way. If you allowed people to access their super, some people would buy a house that wouldn't buy a house. It's pretty clear that, you know, if you've got 10% of your wage locked up in super, that does affect your ability to save for a deposit. Like I don't think, you know, we shouldn't deny that that's probably true. Yeah. Uh, and it does mean that some fewer people buy a house. I just think that's, that's just probably a fact. Um, the question is, does giving them access to their super actually, you know, improve housing affordability in general and for that group in particular. For some of those people, it probably means they buy a house that they otherwise can't afford because they can overcome the deposit constraints. Yeah. That's, not, that's not crazy. The problem being 
that the, the, the effect you're going to have is you're probably also going to boost house prices overall because you're adding to the demand of housing without doing anything about supply. 100%. And that's going to worsen housing, for, housing affordability in general. So it's going to have a second-rate impact that you don't like. <laughs> Even if you do it, it's not going to solve the problem. You know, we know that housing has become expensive for a whole host of reasons. Some of them, like low interest rates, we really can't do a lot about. Like the reason the interest rates are low is because we're in a recession and even before we're in a recession, you know, there's been this secular decline in interest rates around the world. And if, yeah. if Reserve Bank didn't cut rates, we'd have high unemployment. And that's something we want to avoid. Yeah. But other things we can solve for. So we can fix planning rules that prevent the supply of housing in, in or in middle suburbs of our mm-hmm. major cities. We can fix tax settings like native gearing or the capital gains tax discount or whatnot. Yeah. Now, all of these things are hard, which is why no one has done them. Um, and super, I think, falls into that category of the kind of thing that you do that sounds good. It's going to be popular, I suspect. Yeah. But it's probably not going to make a big difference to the problem in the long run. And that's the danger of it, isn't it? Because it's very short-term thinking. It sounds like a Band-Aid. It's easy money in a way because it's all sitting there and people fe- feel a bit ripped off because they can't access it. Um, and. and- in a way, there's some. I guess we've got a couple of little precursors on this. I mean, we've got and we've got some data, obvious access to data of the amount of people that actually drew down their super because of COVID. Yeah. Right. So they sort of fudged up hardship and took out ten or twenty thousand dollars, and a number of those have used that and put that towards a house deposit. And we've discussed this before. And and I think the banks at first seemed to have the attitude they weren't going to reward that, but now. Chris, I understand some banks are lending on that. Is that fair to say? Well, they don't know where that money's from after a few months. It's just seen as savings. You know, right, okay. asking for your saving history over the last five years, they're saying, well, show us your money for the last three months. And so, you know, they don't can't match that to your super. And so that's how they but in the in the height of the uh, COVID sort of when they were happening in, you know, April to sort of July, August, um, banks were not looking on that very favorably you know, because they thought that you were into financial distress. So it'd be interesting to know, I guess, if you could get access to how many people have actually used it for that. But also if you look at back at just generally speaking, our attitudes towards super and the big sort of craze towards setting up a self-managed super fund and buying investment property in it, that was, it's petered out now because the banks have sort of exited uh, that market. But, you know, that was really popular a good 10 years ago, 10, yep. even five years ago, it was still happening. And, and I think too, because a lot of people thought, great, this is my chance. And this, these aren't first home buyers, of course, you know, and they can't live in these properties. But it certainly, I think, goes towards our general attitude towards housing or property being a better investment than our super. Yeah, which is an interesting one because, you know, you, you, you guys would know better than anyone, right, that good investments and investment behavior or principles is that you diversify your, your risk. Yeah. Right. So, and buying a single house to live in is for a start and spending, you know, five, six, seven, eight times your annual income. So if you think you've got 40 years of income in your income earning capacity in your life, wage earning capacity, and you spend eight times of that on a house, that's an enormously concentrated risk in a single investment in a single area. Yeah. Um, which, you know, is the way that Australians have done it, uh, but it does generate some risks. Um, to then add to that by buying investment property, you know, I think a lot of people have made a lot of money out of investment property because interest rates have fallen and it's been a one-way bet. Yeah. Um, 
whether that continues to be the case, I think is a really interesting question. Um, but the value is that you can use leverage to lever up your investments that you can't use for super, but you're taking on some pretty big risks in doing so. And, you know, my general sense on SMSFs is, you know, they do appear to underperform, yeah. you know, an APA regulated super fund. So like a big super fund, like uh, Australian super or uni super or host plus, um, because they're not diversified. Um, and so I'd be very careful about, I've always thought that you should, some people should be very careful about taking on that risk. It could generate a huge return as it has over the last few years, if that risk pays off, but you know, you, I, you, you are taking big risks in and concentrating all your wealth in a couple of houses in Sydney or Melbourne. Um, then you have something like COVID happen and maybe that means people move out of the city. Maybe that suburb that was attractive is less attractive. Like you've got to, you've got to play that very carefully. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. I think you made a really interesting point that, you know, one thing is to help people go and buy their first home so you allow them to access their super. But ultimately, it's just kicking the can down the road. You're just creating higher house prices, which is going to make it harder for the next generation. And it's just this constant problem. Um, and that's great for people who've got property, you know, allowing access to people to get money out of super, it'll without doubt increase demand dramatically. Um, but people who wouldn't be able to buy can now buy. And they'll all want to do it at the same time. And you create this like almost mini boom of first home buyers entering the market, which is what happens when you get, you know, state government grants, et cetera. Um, but your interesting point is there's no point doing that unless you solve the real problem, which is supply, and that's planning controls um, really. So, you know, but that's difficult at a country level and a state level and then an individual council level, and then you've got to get developers to actually build it. Um, you know, it's just such a, a big beast that's so hard to, you know, take action on. Um, and I don't think the other option is, you know, cancel negative gearing, increase capital gains tax, um, you know, Labor took that to the last election, uh, was guaranteed to win the election, and for some reason they didn't lose the they lost the election, and part of that probably was that policy plus the you know the um, franking credit. So, is the government going to be game to do that again? Probably not in the foreseeable future. So, do you think that you know the government's going to go for the easy bait, um, which is you know a next budget just allow people to take an amount out of super because? Ultimately, that's good for the Australian economy to pump up the construction industry. Yeah, look, if you ask me to forecast, a government's likely to do the hard thing that solves the problem or the easy thing that sounds good. You know, I think we've had 25 years of track record that they've done the latter rather than the former. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> you know, negative gearing and, and franking credits, I think my sense is in 2016 when Labor took negative gearing to the election, it didn't hurt them at that time. Mm. And I think a crucial thing that was going on then is house prices were rising. One of the challenges of taking that election commitment through to 2019 is house prices were falling. Mm. And I think the public conversation is very different as soon as prices start to fall because you can't have improved affordability without someone losing. 
Like prices have got to fall for housing affordability to improve. Exactly. And as soon as that happens, as soon as prices start to fall, like a lot of people get nervous. Yeah. And I think the politics shift a lot. Well, now's actually a great time because negative gearing is actually the least right now because of low rates. And so um, that cash flow and interest-only loans are sort of back and the responsible lending thing is potentially going to change, which means that people can get interest-only easier and uh, investors can refinance and etc. like that. So if you're going to you know, implement a policy like ne- cancelling negative gearing, now's the time to do it um, because rates are so low, you know? Yeah, because rates are so low, I suspect, you know, most analysts these days are starting to think that house prices are going to really take off. Yeah. You know? Yeah, well, we're already seeing it. But the, but see, this, this goes back to that supply thing, right? Because what we're seeing take off is established stock. Uh, we certainly aren't seeing um, lots of price growth and demand for brand new stock, which, of course, is good for the economy to have that take off because we obviously what construction industry, what employs a million people, et cetera, et cetera. What worries me with the, you know, the government's temptation, I think you use the word seductive in your um, in some of your articles, Brendan, it's very seductive to look at all this money and say, well, look, this is a great way for first home buyers to get onto the ladder to access their super. Um, is that there's going to be an obvious temptation to go to say, well, let's let's put that in the bucket along with all the first home buyer incentives and stamp duty concessions, et cetera, et cetera, that all skew all say you really have to, in order to take up on this free money from the government, rabbit ears around that, um, you need to buy brand new or off the plan. And I would really worry if that is what's offered with access to super as well, because the problem is that that with supply, yes, you've got to create more supply in order for prices not to go up. But if you're taking your money out of an investment that's designed to have the value of that investment to go up over time, to go and buy something that is not going to go up in value because going up in value makes it unaffordable for people. Yeah. Do you get my drift? It's a bit of a problem there, isn't it? Yeah. So I think it's a it's a tricky one to to, to base public policy on your expectation. Like I, you know, we've talked about some reasons why super housing is not a good idea, um, but I think it's dangerous to to or it's difficult to base a public policy on the expectation about what's going to happen to prices or the returns of relative assets because we just don't. True, know. but don't. That, yes, and of course we don't know it. But the problem is though that if you're taking it from a compulsory savings where it's basically locked away in order to be a true investment into something where there's actually quite a lot of data to show that Mm. prices uh, across the board with brand new apartments and house and land packages, you know, a lot of price falls, a lot of um, second sale losses, you know what I mean? There's a lot of data that it shows that it's the riskier segment of the market. and so you taking it out of, of what's proven to work into something that has got a high probability of not working. And then you're saying that, you know, you'll get to retirement, but you'll own your own home and you probably have to get a pension because you won't have super. <laughs> do you get my drip? But you're still, you, you've potentially got an asset that yeah. you owe money on and it's still, it's not worth much. Yeah, it's interesting. It is a risk, right? And so one of the challenges here, so think of it this way. If you, if you buy a house, if you take your money out of super and bought a house, then you're going to have an asset that's worth something by retirement. It may be worth less or more than what you paid for it, right? And you're going to have to have tried to pay it off by retirement. What you'll clearly have less super. Like that would be, I think that's undoubtedly true. Yeah. I think what's interesting though, is that people don't tend to draw down on their housing assets in retirement either. So 
if the house is worth a bit less because you've ended up buying perhaps not the right thing or, you know, and there's a lot of risks that come from buying off the plan, right? It's a, it's a much riskier proposition just because you don't know what you're going to get. And I think a lot of people are very reluctant to go down that path, yeah. particularly for something that's going to be their family home, mm-hmm. the own-occupied home. So it's just, it's really tricky, right? Like this isn't an easy area of public policy, trying to combine the economics of housing and the economics of super. I suppose like the thing I'd be, the way I would think about it would be, it kind of comes back in part to what you set the rate of compulsory super to be. And so if, you know, if the purpose of the system is to make you set a default for most people so that most people are saving as much to have enough in retirement compared to beforehand, um, then, you know, my sense is you shouldn't allow access for early access for kind of any reason, you know, because that 9.5% number, which we think is about the right number, is doing that really well. If you compel people to go to 12, then you are forcing a lot of people to save for a higher living standard and retire. In fact, most people are safe for a higher living standard and retirement than what they had beforehand. The bottom 30% of income earners will get a pay rise when they retire. The pension plus what super they have will be higher than what they earned before they retired. Hmm. In that world, I'd be open to saying, look, you should be able to take out the, the, anything above the 9.5% rate should not be preserved. You can take it out at tax time because then the super is doing its job of the 9.5% rate, and, but you should be able to take it out for any reason you want. It shouldn't just be the housing. But I wouldn't, I'm kind of reluctant to see people tap into the, the underlying 9.5%, which I think is where the government may be going, in some of the public commentary, I'd be inclined to say, no, you shouldn't allow that to happen. I guess the issue, you're making something that's already complex, that's been tinkered and tinkered and tinkered with, for, you know, 30 years, um, rates and, you know, um, you know, the funds and the industry and et cetera. And that's just going to make it even more complex. You know, you had defined benefits before, et cetera. Um, you know, sometimes simplicity is the, the best policy. Do you think the government's just going to say, well, ultimately we're in a recession, you know, we've got unemployment, Let's just kick the can down the road. Let's just do the 12% in, say, five or 10 years' time. Let's just see how things recover. Let's put more money in our you know, Australians' pockets rather than just canning it and saying, look, no more, 9.5% is the best. Look, I think the clear, the clear answer from the review is that the 9.5% rate is all you need to do. So, you know, the, the, the reason why you don't stop it is basically the politics. You think it'll be very hard to, to stop it. Because if 9.5% is enough, why are you forcing people to save more when it's hard for them to dissave? The only way they can counteract the effect of that compulsion is to take out more debt, right, during their working lives. So if 9.5% is enough, you should stop there. Um, I think a, a second answer is, okay, well, look, it's reasonable. If you thought 12 was the right number, then, yes, delaying for a period right now is not a bad idea because um, because you go, the, the economy is in recession the last thing you do during a recession is try to lift national savings. Yeah. You know, savings <laughs> rates already through the roof. Why would yep. you force it up higher? So I think the obvious answer is don't do the increase. And that's why, but that's why I think this alternative where you do do the increase, but you let people to cash it out is probably an easy one for the government to go to because it, it negates the whole debate about does super come from wages? Am I going to get a pay rise instead? Mm. Um, well, it in- is a pay rise, isn't it? Then, well, yeah, access your future savings today. It's like you know credits, and, and people will do it. I mean, but, sure that, but also forces the employers to pay it. You know what I mean? So that that takes out that that 
that argument as to, well, if, if the super goes up, then there's not going to be a pay rise. Well, there's, there's your wage rise built into the increase in super and then you get access to it. Yeah, I think the economics are pretty clear that if super goes up, it will come from wages. But the politics are such that that is sometimes a hard thing to sell because yeah. you're trying to sell a counterfactual um, that, <laughs> that, you know, and selling counterfactual is difficult. It's not something that people can see. Um, and so, you know, I find this whole argument that's sort of super, you know, we haven't had wage rises since, since 2014 when the super increase was delayed, proves that super doesn't come from wages to be pretty, to be pretty um, silly way of thinking about it. Because you, you're ignoring everything else that affects wages growth. The only way that's convincing is if you think super is the only thing that affects wages growth. Whereas the, the groups that have actually looked at that question in detail, the Reserve Bank, yep. Grattan, and researchers from ANU that were commissioned by the review all come to the conclusion that most of it comes from wages. Mm. And so if you don't, if you increase the rate of compulsory super, you'll get lower wages growth than you otherwise would have gotten. Mm. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? So what do you think of the super saver scheme? Look, I think it's one of those things, again, it sounds good. It's not going to make a big difference. Yeah. What you're basically offering people is access to tax, a tax preferred savings vehicle for their, for their housing deposit. Um, you know, because you can you can put money into that scheme out of your pre-tax income, you basically chuck it in your super fund and it sort of like sits there and you can then take any of those voluntary contributions over a five-year period and withdraw them for a house. Yeah. Well, and you get more, you, you supposedly get a better return than by sticking that money in the bank and also you're getting a tax saving, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's a way of just turbocharging your deposit, making it work a bit harder. It's still but- limited though, isn't it? You don't get it. You don't get to, you know, put a hundred grand in there. No, that's right. And you've got to, it's obviously money that you've got to be able to have the ability to save above and beyond, you know, out of your normal income. Exactly. And that's where this, if the government do what, you know, potentially could happen is they could can that policy because it's not really making a huge dent into you know, helping people get onto the ladder. And they could say, well, let's allow people, you know, 25,000 per individual to get access to super. So a couple could get 50. And then you've got Paratet last couple of weeks saying that, you know, no longer stamp duty, let's move it to land tax, which I'm sure you're a fan of, Brendan. Um, If you put those two things together, someone who needed to, say, buy a house at a million dollars, or it could be 500,000, doesn't really matter. Let's say you need 150,000. Well, you don't need 150,000 anymore. You've got 50 out of super, so now you need 100. You don't have to pay stamp duty, which is 50. So now you only need 50,000 savings. Um, And that's if you put these two policies together at the same time, um, you're going to increase demand dramatically because, you know, that person doesn't need 150 to get their first time in a million dollars, they only need 50. And that could, you know, you might not even anything if you could wanted to buy a house at, you know, 500,000. So, you know, how do you kind of feel about the land tax sort of debate together with a super debate at the same time, turbocharging things like you said? Yeah, so I think it's pretty clear that if if New South Wales does go down the path of giving people the option of paying land tax or stamp duty, because that's the idea, right? Yeah. You get to choose. It would probably be from, I suspect, near the end of next year um, if they went ahead. You get to choose whether to pay stamp duty or land tax, you know, and they're going to they're gonna have thresholds. So it's only properties worth less than, I think it's 80% of properties they're aiming for that you'll have this choice. Mm. Um, and so, like, the big home on Potts Point, you still have to pay stamp duty. Um it's clearly going to raise prices in the short term. Like I think that's unambiguous because you're all of a sudden relaxing a deposit constraint and you're going to bring forward some purchases. Yeah. Um, 
Now, the stamp duty change in New South Wales in the long term should probably lower prices because in the long term, you are better allocating the housing stock because you'll see turnover go up a lot, right? If you no longer have to um, pay stamp duty. Like, you know, we're living in a house in Melbourne with two kids. All of a sudden, at the start of the year, I didn't realise I needed a home office. Now I need a home office. Um, I'd probably be in a different house right now if it wasn't for stamp duty. Um, so we're not in that house. That's the cost of stamp duty is we're not in the house that better suits our needs. And there's probably some retiree that would take that money and go downsize somewhere if they could, uh, probably to the country because they don't feel the need to be in the city anymore. Um, that's the cost. So if you take away stamp duty and replace the land tax, yes, I think you will add to prices in the short term, but in the long term, you'll probably reduce, um, better allocate the housing stock. And so it'll, it'll make housing more affordable. Um, the one thing I do want to say about the New South Wales reforms, I'm a fan of the idea of changing, but there's a big, there's some big unanswered questions with those reforms. You know, what you're doing is you're giving up upfront the stamp duty you used to receive from all those people and, yeah. and you're getting the land tax, which is probably worth one fifteenth of the value. How are they, yeah, I wonder how they modelled that and how they're budgeting for that shortfall. Well, I, we haven't seen the modelling yet. Um, because that's going to be the question is because they think after 20 years, half of properties in Sydney, in New South Wales will have transferred to the new system. Uh, but that means half haven't. Um, and so on top of that, you also have, so that's a big hole in your budget revenues for quite a long time. And that's why we were never a fan of the opt-in model because in normal times, balanced budgets, the politics of balanced budgets, the state governments means that's a non-starter because stamp duty is the second largest source of tax revenue for the state. Um, if you blow a $5 billion hole in the state budget, like that's political suicide in normal times. Now, COVID means the budget's already got a huge hole blown in it. And all you're doing is tipping a couple of billion down the hole and you barely hear it hit the bottom. Um, but you've still got this problem that it's a long transition and you've got this adverse selection problem that if you say you're, I imagine when you, Veronica, Chris, when you, you, um, you talk to your clients, and they've got this choice between stamp duty and land tax, you're going to help them run the numbers and say, how long do you think you're going to hold this property for? And if you're going to hold it for a short period, you're going to choose the land, the, um, the land tax. And if you're going to hold it for a long period, you're going to choose the stamp duty. And so people are going to choose the thing that's better for them. You know, that's human nature. Um, but the loser is the, ta- is, the, is the tax office. Like they're going to collect less revenue than what they did previously. And so those things together, that adverse selection problem of people mm-hmm. choosing what's best for them, plus the huge hole in revenue from transitioning from standing to land tax, which is one fifteenth of the value, you could have, face a big budget for, shortfall in New South Wales for 20 years. We just don't know yet. And that's the thing that until we know that answer, that's the thing that could make the whole thing fall apart. How has it played out in the ACT? Well, they did a different model. They just did, you know, it's... It's a Labor government. It's been a Labor government for a long time. It's basically a glorified local council. Um, and, and look, I say this as a former Canberra. Like, the system works really well, um, but we've like got a lot more. Chris. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. We just lost all our Canberra listeners now. <laughs> I think most Canberra listeners, uh, being public servants and the like, would probably agree with you, um, agree with us. But there they gradually transitioned out of stamp duty and raised land tax on everyone. So in New South Wales, you don't pay land tax unless you choose to. In the ACT, you have to pay land tax. Even if you're, you know, been in the house for 30 years, it just starts small and it gradually grows over 20 years. It's like, you know, the, the frog boiling in the pot. The idea yeah. is you're going to scream less 
um, because it's happening gradually. Uh, that option is, I, we think, a better model, but it's politically very difficult. And in a state like New South Wales where house prices are eight times income, ten times income, that's a big impost pretty quickly. Well, especially if you just bought a property and paid your, you know, 4% stamp duty, you think, bugger that, I don't want to cop that and cop land tax. Yeah, that's right. And so you've kind of got three problems you're dealing with the transition. Revenue stability, recent purchases, as you just said, and then the asset-rich income poor. You know, people, pensioners that own a home worth $2 million in western suburbs of Sydney uh, but are earning twenty grand a year on the pension. Um, now, there are various ways you manage those transitions. The ACT model is one way. Um, the, the opt-out model is like the path of political least resistance that New South Wales has gone for, but it puts a big question mark about the long-term budgetary cost of the change. And until you see that, I don't think we'll know whether it's going to whether it's going to, one, have bipartisan support, because Labor's said so far, look, we're open, but they want to see the numbers. Um, and, you know, if it turned out that, you know, that you're going to see a big budget hole for a long time and a Labor government cares more about services and service provision, they may say, no, they don't want to do that. And then it's a question about whether it gets up. I probably would say, I mean, on the land tax thing, um, I think you're right. In the short term, you're increasing demand dramatically because you're lowering the deposit hurdle. Um, you're also giving the incentive for people to trade up because, you know, they don't have to have the deposit hurdle for the next home. Um, and down, uh, you know, because well, a lot of retirees don't want to sell out of the big house and downsize because they don't want to be, they don't want to pay stamp duty. There's a lot of other reasons why they don't want to do it. Firstly, they ultimately they've got memories in those homes. They've got grandkids. They've got who um, they need those homes when they want to come and stay. Um, it's their best asset. They know it's their best asset. They're going tax-free. You know, they know that if they sell out of that, um, that, you know, they, they'll probably might regret it one day. A lot of people just, a lot of that generation um, would prefer to stay in their home, make, make modification, modifications to the home than downsize. I think the whole COVID thing has scared the hell out of that generation, um, you know, and they've thought, well, I'm so glad I had a house through this rather than lived in an apartment. So the health impact as well. Um, so I think that generation, assuming that land tax change stamp duty the reason they're not downgrading i think it's don't they don't think it is i think maybe the upgraders um don't want to pay that stamp duty um but the problem is upgraders take on more debt and so upgraders you know if you sell your house what you spoke about there brendan um and you need a study well most likely uh human nature go back to the bank responsible lending changes you can borrow more rates are cheaper you'll go you know what let's just push the envelope a little bit let's just take out a few extra hundred thousand um and then you've got the you know, first-home buyers adding debt and transactions create more debt. That's just ultimately um, what you do. Um, and so I don't think you'll create much more transactions in the downsizers. Um, I just think that's not the reason they'll, they're not downsizing. But what you ultimately would do would create more upgrading, more flippers um, and more first-home buyers and, and more investors because investors are saying, well, you know, if I need a uh, they want to buy an investment property. I need equity to cover a 20% deposit plus stamp duty. But now it's only, you know, 20%, or maybe I can get interest only loan at 90%. So, um, I think you'll find that I believe that land tax will be a huge rocket up prices if it happens. Um, because ultimately you're just creating a lot more demand with very little new supply. So Chris, one thing to keep in mind, obviously, I, I think you're right. It would probably, you know, people like me would take on more debt and we'd buy, right? You've got to, you've got to have the fight. You've still got rules around serviceability um, that 
land the land tax will be built into. So that's an ongoing cost that banks will build into um, into their their mortgage uh, their credit assessments for individuals. Potentially, you're also at a time where you know April next year responsible lending rules um, are likely to change um, and. Banks are already going back from the forensically looking back at people's expenses and it's pretty likely we're going to move to a HEM model where expenses are not verified. And if that happens, which is what the, you know Freiburg wants, um, then yes, you might increase living costs a little bit higher for these new rates, but ultimately they're spending a lot more than they are anyway. And, so, uh, and you've got lower assessment rates because of lower rates. So Borrowing capacities are already up dramatically. So if you reduce that a little bit because of the higher annual land tax bill, um, it's not going to make a big difference, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's mainly, but that's mainly a function of the lending rules, right? So I've never loved the responsible lending rules as a, as a concept. Um, not to say that I don't think you should have pretty strict or very carefully thought through rules around prudential regulation of credit. But you know, you've kind of got two sets of rules. Like the responsible lending rules are sort of were sort of saying banks should just should judge consumers' ability to repay by not just looking at their income, but also verifying their expenditures yeah. to make sure the loan was right for them. You know, we had that had the famous you know uh, Wagyu and Shiraz and Wagyu case where you know Justice Perham threw out the case against Westpac, even though both Westpac and ASIC agreed that there was um, breaches of responsible lending and the, the judge said, I can't see anything here. The, I think the laws weren't great, weren't a great way of actually implementing, you know, the laws are not the main way you assess credit risk. The, I think they are a way of making sure that people who are assessed as a good credit who might end up in financial stress but still keep repaying the loan, that's what those laws are intended to do. And I just don't know if they did a great job in practice of actually achieving that outcome. Yeah. Underlining that, you've still got the sort of credit assessments where, you know, banks have got to assess people's ability to repay, assuming, you know, an interest rate of, say, two and a half percentage points or two percentage points above the interest rate on the loan that's being offered. If you were worried about credit risk and financial stability, um, I would be using those levers rather than the responsible lending laws to sort of try to keep a lid on, on the whole show. If you're worried that financial stability is at risk or if you're worried that if interest rates which may well go lower, at least the term structure is going to go lower. Hmm. You know, we're going to expect interest rates to be low for a long time. Then maybe you you, you use those macro prudential rules, you use those credit risk assessments, the, the serviceability rules, to manage the risk the house prices explode, which is, I think, a bit of a risk at the moment, given interest yeah. rates are now expected to remain low in a long time, <laughs> stamp duty changes, um, you know, the whole works, super for housing would add to that as well. Exactly. So let's go back to super for a minute before we sort of hit you for a dumbo. Women, because women are typically retiring with a hell of a lot less super than men mm. um, and women have a lower rate of home ownership than men, you know, outside couples. Um, the rate of homelessness of women over 55 is growing. Mm -hmm. It's the largest growing cohort. So that 650-page report all about superannuation um, situation in this country. What has it, is there anything in there <laughs> for women, about women, <laughs> recognition of this, rectifying this situation? Yeah, I think, I think there's actually quite a lot in there because um, it goes to, okay, 
going back, think about your two purposes of, of, of retirement incomes with respect to adequacy. Are you at risk of financial poverty and stress? It's like, yes, women are at high risk. They earn less. That's largely a reflection of the fact that they earn less. Um, they have lower incomes during their working life. You know, there are lots of reasons for that. They're, in, they're less attached to the labor force. There is the gender pay gap, which is pervasive and ongoing, um, and, and all of these things. Um, and then you've kind of got, are they saving, are they, is, are they, what, what share of their income are they replacing in retirement? And what's interesting is because while women are much more likely to experience poverty, and we absolutely should care about that, it kind of goes to what the solutions are. Because the second one, which is, are women replacing, you know, living, having a good, as good a living standard in retirement as what they did beforehand? On average, they've got a, they replace a larger share of their income than men do. Because they right. earn less and therefore the pension's worth more, right? Yes. <laughs> um, as a share of their income. So this is mm. not to say this is not a problem, but it goes to the instrument that you use to solve the problem. The measurement, Because yeah. the rate of compulsory super is about making you have more in retirement relative to when you're working. Now, women are in poverty, more likely to be in poverty in retirement. They're also more likely to be in poverty during working life. So if you say raise super to solve that problem, then all you're doing is mm-hmm. making them poorer in retirement to make them less poor in more poor in working life to make them less poor in retirement. It's not the right solution. Um, what the review does is it did some really interesting work saying, okay, what's the gender gap? And then how much of the gender gap is made up for by the age pension, the income support system? And, you know, the gender gap in retirement incomes is about 15%. Right. Roughly the same as through working life, right? Was it 17% No, still? no. It's, I think during the, by the gender gap in super, so, yes, it's similar to the gender gap during of your working life income, but the gender gap in super at retirement is much bigger. It's something like yeah. 40%. And so the pension's the thing that is equalising the gap between mm. men and women and keeping women out of poverty to the extent that they're not in poverty, that lower, otherwise low-income women would be in poverty. And so it goes to what you do in the solutions. So there are some things you could do like pay super and pay parental leave, you know, that would clearly target the gender gap because women more likely yep. take, you know, t- take time out of the workforce. But a lot of the solutions are not about super. They're about just fixing rent assistance because if you fix rent assistance so that people who are not in poverty, who are most people who are in poverty in retirement um, are renters, solving that would solve a lot of the poverty problem for women. Raising super doesn't solve that problem because it makes them poorer beforehand. You could do very super top-ups, um, but those, t- those things tend to be not very well targeted by income. You know, so if you, are, if you chuck $10,000 into everyone who's, who's, um, who's like earns less than 40 grand uh, into their super account and who earns less than 40 grand when they're 30, some of those people end up being in poverty and retirement otherwise. Some of them are just, say, students um, and end up having a high lifetime income. So, you know, yeah. I tend to think what the about way to solve it is sorry, baby bonus. Instead of the baby bonus, be a super bonus for mothers that have given birth, <laughs> taking time out of the workforce. But <laughs> I don't know. I'm not into in policy. But you know what I mean. It's it's like, it, unfortunately, biology is against women. You know, it's it's. I don't know any men that have had babies and, and oh, you can take time out, of course, if you, you can take uh, parental leave if you're a, um, a man, but there's, you know, there are certain biological functions that women's bodies do that men's bodies can't do, you know what I mean? And so, and then it's also that the traditionally the, the person who has taken more time out yeah. and taken part-time work, et cetera, et cetera, in order to, uh, to parent 
And it's not to say it's, it's, it has to be always that way, but it's just the, the traditional way. And obviously that's been one of the, the biggest impacts, wouldn't you say, in terms of the pay gap? Yeah, absolutely. So you've got an unequal distribution of care responsibilities across the community mm. and it just skews so heavily towards women and that's a problem. We something we should fix. Um, and that compact a bit. So what it does though is because super, super like the gender inequity in super was built into it from the, from the beginning, mm. you know, because what you get out is what you put in and you put in less if you are in the workforce less. You put in less if you earn less than men for doing the same yeah. work. Um, you know, these are familiar tropes, Veronica. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the first ways I would try to solve the problem is try to avoid poverty. And poverty is about the income support system. So strengthening that income support system to actually solve that problem. Because it, it's what's interesting is we did some analysis um, on the submissions to the, to the Retirement Income Review a while ago. Um, and it was really striking you know, superannuation gets mentioned more in submissions than all of age pension, housing, homelessness, aged care and rent assistance combined. <laughs> right. Uh, you had submissions that were talking about gender that mainly talked about super and said very little about the income support system. Um, and I think it's because the system skews towards super being the solution um, when, in fact, there are probably in a lot of cases better solutions in the income support system that would solve a lot of the problems that you're most worried about. Because the value of the pension, right, is that say you're in a case of domestic violence, you know, if you've got super, yes, it's preserved, although increase, if, and this is one of the risks if you allow early access, that it can exacerbate that, that gap because you have coercive partners that yeah. force the woman to take out their super. The value of the pension is it's an entitlement that follows you wherever you go. So if you, the moment you leave, you get access to that pension and mm. retirement. It's almost a safety net that you can take with you if you if you want to get out of a difficult situation. Um, whereas if it's all in super and it ends up in some SMSF that's sort of jointly run, getting access to that money is really hard in the event of a divorce, particularly a divorce that's um, mm. you know not amenable and it's expensive because you've got to get lawyers involved. Yeah. So there's real value in having the pension, the income support system as a way of getting people out of those situations. Yeah. And in using the pension and the, and fixing the gaps in the income support system, I think would go quite a long way to solving the problem of, of basically it's a more efficient way to solve the problem of poverty and retirement for women is to solve poverty because they will be the main beneficiaries of those improvements in the income support system. So, Brent, have you got a property dumbo for us? No, I really, I, I really don't have one today. Um, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, I'm just not. I'm not the right person to uh, who's close enough to the sector. I spent it the first time around. You don't have to be close to the sector. You just have to be close to friends often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Well, you can probably put me down as having bought a three-bedroom house then having two kids and then needing an office in the pandemic. It's not a great situation <laughs> to be in. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also being in Melbourne, it's, uh, it's tougher down there this year, isn't it? So how, how's it all been for you? I mean, do you think that, uh, ultimately your views of home ownership have changed and do you think you'll actually take action on those? Because that's the longer-term impact. So it'd be interesting to see this on an anecdotal side, you know, are you actively going to do a home upgrade now because of COVID? I think what I've, I've seen is a few people are, a lot of people are going to work from home a lot more than they used to. So the, the research on, um, on how people are going to work from home 
is is very much it's not people are going to be all at home and never in the office yeah. it's they're going to spend more time in at home than they used to and the group for whom that is most clear is people with young kids because trying to manage you know i haven't had to travel get on a plane for six months i've had dinner every night with the kids you know we take it in turns who does childcare pickups and drop offs and all that sort of stuff um that's something we're going to continue uh and most friends that i speak to in similar situations that's what they're going to do mm. so i think what it means is you have more demand for renovations and additions to the housing stock for like the three bedroom house plus yeah. the office yeah um it is probably has been a prompt for us to think about it um again though stamp duty is the big cost so you know if 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 the if victoria had done what new south wales has done or is thinking of doing we'd probably wait for that and then and then push the button it is interesting because we certainly have seen and we have had the benefit in Sydney of not having had the second lockdown and uh, absolutely I think the biggest sort of impetus of, uh, or the biggest group of people looking for a new home are definitely people with small children needing that extra room. It's phenomenal and almost almost immediate. In fact, I would say immediate, straight out of the gates, beginning of May, bang, <laughs> those sorts of properties massive demand increase and definitely Melbourne as well talking to you know buyers agents down there and seeing what clients are experience um I think you know as soon as lockdown finished there Melbourne's just you know gone crazy because there's you know very low stock but lots and lots of buyers so thank you Brendan I really enjoy our chat I, I I'm still not sold on the the nine and a half percent to stay there I, my philosophy on these things is you know save more um and force people to save more. I know that's very dictator of me, but I think that that's ultimately going to build a bigger saving pool that when you get greedy governments and who need to save economies, um, you know, uh, at times like now, um, we'll, we'll access, you know, I'm sure this 10,000 thing won't be the first time we see that over our working life. You'll see this super, uh, you know, home buyer sort of option, et cetera. So I think just get people to keep on saving and then fix the actual system itself, get lower fees, potentially look at um, a big national fund that people can join, um, other things like that, um, and then potentially dial it back down or et cetera. So, but anyway, it's a good chat and um, the, I'm sure that the policymakers will just take the easy option anyway. <laughs> well, time will tell. Um, but thanks again for the time. Yeah, really appreciate it. Great speaking with you, Brendan. And for anyone who wants to listen to the other episodes with Brendan back in episode 89, we tackled these same big issues but with a different lens because it was a couple of years ago and in episode 124 we actually talked about what's like could happen in the wake of COVID. So that's around unemployment, what will happen to wages, immigration, what does a recession mean for most Australians and how does that translate into property prices. So that was back oh, probably oh, I don't know, seven or eight months ago in episode 124. So go back and listen to those and sort of see how the uh, situation is unfolding. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well, you know, Brendan was telling us of his situation. He's uh, at home, working at home a lot. Presumably his wife is as well. And you've got two small children and uh, he's in a three-bedroom house. And so the pressure's on, space is uh, at a premium, bulging at the seams. And as when we interviewed Anna Stoltz from Domain, you know, the uh, search term home office had gone up something like 800% as a result of COVID. So... What's pushing up uh, or pushing demand for family homes is very much that absolute, you know, almost manic um, uh, search 
for more space and and a lot of buyers out there. So, you know, it's hard when you need the space and you are in the frame of mind that your home is not right for you and you've really got to get out there and, and sell an upgrade, but you are competing with so many more people than potentially would have been competing at any other time. So I just thought we should just sort of um, brainstorm a little bit right now and say, well, okay, calm the farm a little bit. What are some alternatives that you could do or look at if you need some space at home for a home office? And two, the sort of right off the bat for me, or one right off the bat for me was one of those backyard cabins. I mean, there's places where you could buy them. They could, they could be insulated, air conditioned, have fan in there, whatever, uh, with power and um, set it up remotely out the backyard if you've got a big enough block of land. So there's one option. You got any options, Chris? I mean, I think most people have been a bit innovative over this period to um, find some space. I mean, the really simple solution, if you've got a couple of kids, is get noise-cancelling headphones um, and then you won't <laughs> hear them. But, uh, you know, that's $400 well spent. But I think, you know, what do you actually need for a home office? I think, you know, fortunately, uh, a laptop now can have long charge as well. Um, you know, maybe you can use the garage. I just think people will get, you know, just doing a home upgrade so you can have a, a metre square somewhere quiet. Um, you know, I think people, uh, you know, not everyone's just going to have to do it, right? The, you know, there's, an office can be built anywhere in the house potentially. Um, so I'd be thinking about those things first rather than just straight to a home, you know, thinking you need a nice office to the side. But those cabin things are, are good. I mean, the, inno- you know, the innovation around those is just starting. Um, you know, I've looked at them in a bit of detail. There's, um, you know, Archiblocks have one called Backyard Rooms, but, you know, you're talking like 30 grand, you know, sometimes mm. you need council approval, sometimes you don't, um, you know, not many people. Well, you need the space too in the first place, obviously, to be able to do it. The space, and then you're going to lose that space. You know, it's like putting a pool in. It's like great over summer, but you don't jump in the pool for nine months of the year. So you've lost that space to use in winter to run around and kick the ball and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, you could have the space, but do you really want to lose it? So Potentially, though, that could be a value add. Let's face it, you know, because this this isn't going to go away. You know, I think we've had so many episodes where we've discussed the work from home movement and even just this hybrid model where people are working from homes maybe three days a week, you know, so therefore this pressure for this space and this dedicated space isn't going to go away. Um, and, you know, if you're not taking away too much from your outdoor space, it could be a, a, it could be an asset. Potentially. I think um, if your target market is that young family and, you know, professional couples and you're a little bit further away from the city and, um, more likely to be working from home than, say, you know, access to co-working spaces is very limited around you, which I think will definitely um, explode over the next, you know, 10 years. You'll be lots of co-working space options. I mean, when I started six years ago, there wasn't many, but every year there's more and more. So I don't know. I think like a granny flat, people think, oh, ultimately um, I'm going to have this block of land. I'm going to create a second income stream. But what you do do is you discount a buyer who doesn't want the granny flat, doesn't want the hassle, just doesn't need it um, and ultimately they look at your property and go well it's nice I could get a second income but I'm just not interested um, and so you've got to be always careful adding things and reducing space at your property so if you've got lots of space yeah maybe but I think just be careful turning your backyard into a pot and thinking you know be worth more money <laughs> and there's a couple of other sort of you know more practical solutions you potentially have got a space under the stairs I've seen some soundproofed 
spaces created under the stairs. So when you do have to go in there and make those calls or um, do those, make those Zoom calls. Yeah. And the other thing, the virtual background, because then you can go in any room of the house and go into your bedroom if you want to. <laughs> You've got a virtual background to your Zoom. You know, nobody needs to see exactly what room you're in at the time. Yeah, that's right. And cafes, you know, I think that, you know, people, you know, the work from home thing um, doesn't, you don't have to be at home. The work from anywhere movement for me is much more exciting, um, whether that's not just locally, it's globally. And the thing that held you back globally was internet um, and the cost of data when you travelled. But if you type that in now, pretty much you can go anywhere in the world, get a really cheap SIM card with plenty of data on it. Um, and so the work from anywhere thing plus 5G, um, I think will be the next decade. So watch this space. And I don't think we need to worry about working from anywhere in the world for <laughs> a little while. Well, you're from Queensland now, so that's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> join us for our next episode we've got a whole episode dedicated to the perth property market is perth finally after about a decade on the nose is it on the turn and if it is on the turn are investors getting involved in that market or not and what should they be looking for what makes perth different and is it a bit of the canary in the coal mine for the whole country's property market well join in and listen as we interview damian collins He's uh, a Perth expert and uh, you'll find the insights quite interesting. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first-home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.